Deuteronomy chapter number 12. Let's begin reading in verse number 8. Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse number 8. We've been preaching out of the book of Deuteronomy here lately and, and probably will be preaching again actually out of this very same chapter on Sunday night. But there was a thought that jumped out to me in my study and I want to share it with you tonight. Deuteronomy chapter number 12, verse number 8. The Word of God says, Ye shall not do after all the things that we do here this day. Every man whatsoever is right in his own eyes. For ye are not as yet come to the rest and to the inheritance which the Lord your God giveth you. But when ye go over Jordan and dwell in the land which the Lord your God giveth you to inherit, and when he giveth you rest from all your enemies round about so that ye dwell in safety, then there shall be a place which the Lord your God shall choose to cause his name to dwell there. Thither shall ye bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the heave offering of your hand, and all your choice vows which ye vow unto the Lord. And ye shall rejoice before the Lord your God, ye and your sons and your daughters, and your men servants and your maid servants, and the Levite that is within your gates, forasmuch as ye have no part nor inheritance with you. Let's pray together. Father, we love you tonight. Thank you for letting us be here. Thank you for giving us a church, Lord. Thank you for giving us this group, this body of believers called out from the world by the salvation of your grace and, Lord, uh, implanted supernaturally into your body. And, Lord, allowing us to have the fellowship we have, uh, the, the strength that we gain from each other, the faithfulness that it engenders for us to be together. Lord, I just thank you for the church tonight. Thank you for these people. Thank you for the blood of Christ that's made all that possible. Lord, if it hadn't been for you, there wouldn't be none of this that we see before us. And we just want to thank you for what you've done. Now, I pray that you'd minister your word to the hearts of the hearers tonight, Lord, that we would have our hearts open to the truth of it, that we'd not be looking to the left or the right, but looking inward at our lives and considering what you have to say to us tonight. May we be obedient to your word, obedient to your spirit, as you minister the truth to us. We'll be sure to thank you, Lord. We love you, and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Now, I want you to notice with me in verse number 8. Now, I'm going to explain a little bit about what's going on in the context of Deuteronomy chapter 12, and I want to pick up on a phrase that is taking place here. Now, remember that the book of Deuteronomy is the retelling or the repetition of the law. Moses has led the children of Israel to, we could say, the brink, of Canaan. They are once again at Kadesh Barnea, uh, where they uh, many, many years before had chosen not to trust God, not to go into the land. They are now back in Kadesh Barnea. Moses is getting ready to uh, go home to be with the Lord. Uh, the Lord has revealed to Moses that he'll not go into the promised land. And so Moses, before he uh, sort of transfers the leadership over to Joshua, he is commanded to gather all the children of Israel together and to retell, to read before them the record of their journeys and the law that God has given them. And with that, he is invoking and charging them to a life of holiness and of faith in the Lord. And so as they stand there on the cusp of victory, on the cusp of a, a transitional watershed moment in their lives, Moses looks at them and he's talking about the sanctuary, about how God is going to choose a place when they get into Canaan and he's going to instruct for a sanctuary to be built there. And he says this to them in verse 8, Ye shall not do after all the things that we do here this day. Every man whatsoever is right in his own eyes. Now, before we move into the message, I'll go ahead and tell you what he means when he says you're not going to do what we're doing here today. He's saying during these wilderness wanderings, there has been a sort of looseness to our 
form of worship. We've not always been able to keep the Passover when we uh, should have. We've not always been able to maintain sort of the standards of, uh, of, uh, of ceremonial purity that we would have desired to do. And he's saying, but you're going to get into the land of Canaan. God's going to pick a place and he's going to put his name there and you are going to be expected to abide rigorously by the standards of the law that has been given. He, he, in summarizing the way that they had been living, he says, up to this day, here's what every man's been doing. He's been doing whatsoever is right in his own eyes. I'm arrested by that phrase when I read the Word of God. I, I, when, I, when I saw it, I was fascinated by it. Of course, I don't think of it in the book of Deuteronomy. When I think of that phrase, doing that which is right in your own eyes, I think about it out of the book of Judges. And in fact, there are five times in the Word of God that the phrase, right in his own eyes, is used. One of them we've read here uh, in our text. But the others are found, twice it's found in the book of Judges, that mankind did that which was right in his own eyes. And the other two occasions are found in the book of Proverbs. Solomon writes about the danger of doing that which is right in your own eyes. I want to preach to you on that thought tonight. What are we uh, using as the, as the compass, as the gauge, as the standard, as the counselor in our life to direct our steps and our ways and our convictions? I'll tell you, we live in a world today where there is no shortage of opinions. There are opinions about everything everywhere. I'll tell you what the Internet has done. It's not made men smarter. It's just made them feel like they need to have an opinion about everything. Can I tell you, there's some things that you shouldn't have an opinion about because it don't affect your life and it's of no interest. But we feel compelled to have an opinion about absolutely everything in life. And oftentimes, here's what we do. Those opinions are not well thought out. They're not hard won. They're not firmly founded. Instead, it's just the first opinion that appears. And we take that as our opinion. And then very often, this part of the reason that things are so tribal in our country right now, men will fight and bleed and die over opinions that they don't even really meaningfully hold. just happens to be what their side, their group, their camp, their party uh, believes in. And so there's no shortage of opinions in the world today. And oftentimes, if we want to, we can always find somebody to ennoble and endorse whatever we want to do. One of the great scourges of social media in our day, and I don't think as a piece of technology that there's anything intrinsically wicked or sinful about it, but I do think there's something unhealthy about it, uh, especially the, the outsized emphasis and, and influence it has in our society. And one of the great dangers of social media is it allows you to curate a world in which you do not have friends, you only have fans. You have people around that are going to clap for everything you do, whether it's right or whether it's wrong. And no man needs to have a world comprised of nothing but fans. Sometimes we need a friend. Hey, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Sometimes we need somebody to tell us when we're wrong. Sometimes we need to, to, to have somebody that loves us enough that they don't just want our approval, but they want what's best for us, and they're willing to tell us when we're doing something wrong and living in a wrong way. And this environment that we're living in has created a society where though it was always man's tendency and it was always man's Achilles heel, it is not just tolerated, it is lauded today for men to do that which is right in their own eyes. You'll even hear it as a sort of cultural badge that people wear. They'll say things like, well, no one tells me what to do. Well, number one, that's not true. Number two, if you're married, it's doubly untrue. 
number three, it shouldn't be true. Of course we should have people in our life that challenge us. Of course we should have people in our life that have authority. And even though a man may claim no one has authority, God has authority over everybody. But it's used as this sort of rallying cry. You know, I just do what I want. They'll people tell you, it feels good. If you think it's good, if you believe it's right, whatever it is, just do it. What they're really saying, you could boil all that down, cut through all the noise, and you could summarize it with one statement, do that which is right in your own eyes. That's really what the world's saying. Let me tell you, as a child of God, that's not to be our philosophy. When we read Solomon's account, when we read these little statements he makes about men doing what's right in their own eyes, we find two salient points about this. Listen to what it says in Proverbs chapter 21. It says in verse number 2, Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord pondereth the hearts. You know, I've often said that everybody thinks they're right all the time. I've been accused of that. You've probably been accused of that in your life. Somebody's looked at you and a bunch of wives laughed and a bunch of men just rolled their eyes. I don't know what just happened. But you probably had somebody say, well, you just think you're right all the time. Well, duh. Yeah, and the sky's blue too. Of course, everyone thinks they're right or they wouldn't be doing the things that they're doing. How foolish would it be for a man to say, I know I'm wrong in doing this, but I'm going to do it anyway. Of course, everyone thinks they're right all the time. The question is not, do we think we're right all the time? The question is, do we allow the possibility that we are wrong? See, it's not wrong to think you're right as long as you recognize that you ain't right about everything. It's indeed possible for you to be wrong. It's possible for me to be wrong. Uh, some of us, it's likely. <laughs> And so it's not wrong to think that you're right. In fact, it is a natural condition of mankind. The Bible, the inspired Word of God, says that every way of a man is right in his own eyes. You know what that tells me? If no man is perfect except the Lord Jesus Christ, if no one is sinless except for Him, but if every man's own perspective will always sanctify and endorse his actions, it tells me this, you can't rely on self as your counselor. In other words, we could say this, that Solomon reveals that self is a false counselor. It's not always going to tell you when you're wrong. If you're, if you're waiting for your flesh to correct your bad behavior, you're going to wait through all eternity. Your flesh is not going to tell you when you're wrong. Your flesh is going to tell you you're right no matter if everything says that you're wrong. So Solomon reveals that self is a false counselor. But then he says this in Proverbs chapter 12, verse 15. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes. But he that hearkeneth unto counsel is wise. So self is not only a false counselor, but self is a foolish counselor. Even a man that is behaving foolishly, his flesh and his self will endorse his actions, will ennoble his actions, and will encourage his actions even to his own destruction. You know what that tells me? Not only do you risk being wrong if you only listen to yourself, but you risk making shipwreck of your life if you only listen to self. The person that only listens to self becomes a fool. When we only allow for our perspective, and I mean divorced from the truth of the Word of God, just our perspective apart from what God says, because God's Word is not our perspective, it's His perspective. And then we make His perspective our perspective. It's His view, and then we make it our view. But I'm talking about apart from the Word of God. When a man chooses to live in disobedience to the Word of God, in disregard to the Word of God, it will create a foolish disposition. 
You're going to do things that don't make spiritual sense. You're going to do things that hurt you and things that damage you. So I don't know about you, but I don't want to be that way. I don't want my life to be defined and, and directed by self. So how can I avoid that happening? Well, as it is, when we read through the Word of God, I told you there are five times it's mentioned. Five times this phrase is used. Twice in the book of Proverbs. But the other three show us what happens. What are the conditions that lead to a man living a life that's right in his own eyes, even when it's wrong to do, and even when it destroys his life? What is it that causes that? Well, let's go back to our text in Deuteronomy chapter 12. And I want you to notice the first condition that causes this. Remember the context. At this time, there is no set place of God's sanctuary. They have the tabernacle that they are carrying along with them, but they do not have a set place that is grounded, that is fixed, that is unchangeable and immovable where they are worshiping. And Moses says, there's going to come a day where you're not just going to be wandering around worshiping wherever. There's going to come a day where you're not going to just worship when you want to, but there's going to be a place that you're going to go to, you're going to be required to go to. When that day comes, that place needs to be a big part of your life. He says in verse number 10, when you go over Jordan and dwell in the land which the Lord your God giveth you to inherit, and when he giveth you rest from all your enemies round about so that you dwell in safety, then there shall be a place which the Lord your God shall choose to cause his name to dwell there. Can I just pause and say, thank God there's a place. I'm thankful, listen, in a, in a weary world, I'm thankful there's a place where we can find God. He says, thither shall you bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the heave offering of your hand, and all your choice vows which ye vow unto the Lord. He says, you're going to serve in this place. You're going to minister in this place. You're going to be faithful to this place. Not only that, he says in verse 12, ye shall rejoice before the Lord your God, ye and your sons and your daughters and your men servants and your maid servants and the Levite that is within your gates for as much as he hath no part nor inheritance with you. So not only are you going to serve there, not only are you going to be faithful there, but you're going to worship in this place. Moses says, right now we're doing what's right in our own eyes, but there's come the day that God's going to give us a sanctuary, and when he does, we ain't going to do what's right in our own eyes, we're going to do what's right in the eyes of the Lord. In other words, we could say it this way, how does a man get into a condition where he just lives according to what's right in his own eyes, with no regard for the word of God, with no regard for God's opinion or thoughts about the matter? First off, it happens in a life where the sanctuary is absent. Now, let me be abundantly clear. I don't believe Israel was living in disobedience at this moment. But the reason they were doing that which was right in their own eyes is because there was not a place for them to go to to receive instruction and for them to receive accountability for their thoughts and perspectives to be challenged, for them to be charged, and for them to be shaken up to do something in their life that would count for God. Can I just tell you something I've observed in almost 12 years pastor? A lot of times when folks get out of church, they give up on God. Now, I would say that to a certain degree, getting out of church is giving up on God. But, uh, you know, there, every person that I've ever known that has walked away from church, and I don't mean that God's led them somewhere else. I don't mean that God has opened a door somewhere. But I mean people that just come and, and they just say, you know, preacher, I just, I'm, I'm tired of church. My feelings are hurt. I'm upset at somebody. Something didn't go my way. They all say the same thing. I'm not going to be here for a while, but don't worry, preacher. I'm not going to quit on God. Invariably, they always do. Uh, the reason for that is because they don't have a place for being challenged. Listen, you shouldn't always come to church and hear things that please you. 
Ain't nobody spiritual enough to go to church their whole life and not get their feelings hurt by the Holy Ghost. You come to church, you're going to hear things that challenge you. You're going to hear things that make you mad and make you angry. But I hope you're going to hear some things that charge you to a closer walk with God and to a deeper commitment with Him. But in the vacuum of that absence, you know what men do? Just as they did at this time when they said, well, there's not a place we can go to. We're just going to do it any old way that we want. Well, now there's a place we can go to. Somebody say amen. When you walk away from that, very often what you do is you revert to the same condition. You say, well, I'm just going to do what I think is right. I'm just going to go where I want. I'm going to live how I want. I'm going to do what I want. And your life is now unmoored from any place that holds you to any level of accountability. So a life where the sanctuary is absent. Notice the second place. Turn over to Judges chapter 17. Judges chapter 17. And I'll tell you what, you didn't even have a coupon code for this, but I'm going to give you two for one here, okay? We're going to preach two points out of this same text here in Judges chapter 17. But I want to read the entirety of the text, and and I want to preach a little bit, and then I'm going to go back and I'm going to explain some of what's going on here. Judges chapter 17, verse number 1. The Bible says this, There was a man of Mount Ephraim whose name was Micah. And he said unto his mother, The eleven hundred shekels of silver that were taken from thee, about which thou cursest and spakest of also in mine ears. Behold, the silver is with me. I took it. And his mother said, Blessed be thou of the Lord, my son. Now let me just pause here and say, you ever feel like you just walked into the middle of a conversation? You're not missing anything here. The Holy Ghost walks us into the middle of a conversation. doesn't tell us anything about their background or anything that's going on because it's not salient to the point that God's driving home. So don't feel a little bewildered. I mean, we're all in that boat there. All we know is there's this man named Micah. Evidently, he stole 1,100 shekels of silver from his mama. Evidently, he felt bad about it because she was walking around the house cussing about it. So he goes back to her and says, all right, mama, I took your silver. Here, you can have it back. That's where we all are when we read this, all right? Verse 3 says, And when he had restored the 1,100 shekels of silver to his mother, his mother said, I had wholly dedicated the silver unto the Lord, that's Jehovah, from my hand for my son to make a graven image and a molten image. Now, therefore, I will restore it unto these. Here's what happens here. He says, I stole that money from you. I'm bringing it back to you. She says, I was planning on giving you the money. He says, well, I'm here to give it back to you. She says, well, just go ahead and keep it because I was going to give it to you in the first place. All right. He says this, yet he restored the money unto his mother and his mother took 200 shekels of silver and gave them to the founder who made thereof a graven image and a molten image, and they were in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had an house of gods and made an ephod and teraphim and consecrated one of his sons who became his priest. In those days there was no king in Israel, but every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Can I tell you, the latter portion of the book of Judges is a little bit of a, a confused, schizophrenic portion of the Word of God. Now, I say that reverently. There's not a bit of it that's not what it's supposed to be. But just as the book of Hosea, the manic nature of the, the content of the book of Hosea is meant to express the heartbreak of God and His torment over Israel's disobedience, likewise, the chaos, the unbridled, just Wild West nature of the last few chapters of the book of Judges is not by accident, it's deliberate. 
And it's meant to show what happens when mankind is left under his own devices. In fact, that phrase, every man did that which was right in his own eyes, there was no king in Israel. That is really the summary of the latter portion of the book of Judges. What you find is this sort of gross, macabre series of of gruesome tales of depravity and wickedness in the land of Israel. And the purpose for that is God's trying to show how mankind lives when he lives apart from God. But you know what really summarizes that day? Is it was a day when there was no king in Israel. Now, what are the chances that you've got, oh, I don't know, they were about two and a half million strong when they came out of the land of uh, of Egypt. I mean, undoubtedly at this point, this many hundreds of years later, they're undoubtedly in the tens of millions strong population-wise. What are the chances that there was no man in Israel that stood up and called himself king? I bet there was men that called themselves king. You know what this is speaking of? It's not speaking of a vacuum of willingness to have authority, but rather it's speaking of an unwillingness on the part of Israel to acknowledge any authority in their nation. They would not accept or acknowledge any man as king. Now, somebody could rightly say, well, preacher, God hadn't ordained a king. Ah, but can I remind you why God hadn't ordained a king? God hadn't ordained a king because he was their king. In other words, when it says there was no king in Israel, It's not just saying there was no human man that was reigning over a throne. He was saying God was their king, but they had rejected their king and refused to own his majesty. So we could say it this way. Preacher, how does a man get in a place in his life where he just does what he wants and he doesn't even care what God thinks about it? Well, first a life where the sanctuary is absent. That's what you're going to find, where the sanctuary of God is absent. But number two, a life where the authority of God is abhorred. Can I tell you, the reason men live their own way is because they don't really care what God thinks. Before a man ever acknowledges that he's a rebel against God, he's already a rebel against God. Uh, very few people, in fact, walking on this earth would, would explicitly, literally, physically shake their fist at God. Probably most of them wouldn't do it. Very few people, if you talked to them and said, do you hate God or do you reject God's authority? Probably most people would look at you like you're nuts. But the reality is when a man lives apart from the truth, the word of God, when you disregard what God says, you are in fact doing exactly what they were doing then. Really, your sin is no different than the grave atheist that loathes and despises God, except he's honest enough to admit it. We either accept the authority of God or we don't. And when we reject God's authority and when we say this, God doesn't get to tell me what to do. What we're really saying is God's not God. I'm God. I'm going to do that which is right. In my own eyes, I'm not going to listen to what God says. God has authority whether we acknowledge it or not. And one of these days, we will have to reckon with that authority. But that authority is there no matter whether we acknowledge it or recognize it or not. A man can live a life of a criminal and live on the on the lamb and on the run his entire life, and he's not negated the authority of, of law enforcement. He has evaded it, but he's not negated it. And sooner or later, he's going to get caught, and when he does, he's going to have to reckon with it. In your life, you may you may try to evade the authority of God, but you don't negate the authority of God. He has authority whether you recognize it or not. And one day, hey, listen, it's appointed unto man once to die. What's going to happen after this? After this, the judgment. We're going to have to stand before the judge. A judge is a figure of authority. And God is the judge of all the earth. So it is a life where the authority of God is abhorred. You might as well go ahead and grow comfortable with the fact that God is God. Your life will go so much easier if you will accept the fact that God is God. 
meaning he has the authority, he has the, the, the prerogative in your life, meaning that anything he desires out of your life, you owe it to him. Go ahead and just let him be God, and you'll be a lot better off. Now, let's think again about our text here. We, we, we read it and explained a little bit about it. And, and there's sort of a little bit of, of you know, I, and I used the word schizophrenic a moment ago, and, 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 and I don't mean that in a, in, a, in a flippant way, but I mean, there, when you read this text, you're left wondering, why am I reading about this man named Micah? Who is this man named Micah? All we know is he's from Mount Ephraim. Who's his mother? We don't know what his mother's name is. When was she cursing about these 1,100 shekels? You're left sort of bewildered, feeling like you just walked into the middle of a crime scene. And that is not by accident. God only wants to give us the most pertinent information that we need at this given time because what he wants is to leave you with the impression of chaos and confusion. You know why? Because all of Israel in those days was nothing but chaos and confusion. You know, you read through it, and here's this woman who has these 1,100 shekels of silver, and her son steals it from her. And you're thinking, okay, I've got this figured out. That boy, he's rotten. He's the bad guy. That poor poor mama there just trying to take care of her wayward son. And, and But now, wait a minute. Here this boy comes back, and he's giving the money back. So maybe maybe he's actually not such a bad guy. Maybe the, the, the maybe he's, he's actually okay as an individual. And he gives it to his mother. And his mother's like, well, I had consecrated that to the Lord. And you're like, well, this woman's a saint. And then she says, I had consecrated it to the Lord to make a, a graven image. You're like, wait a minute. I thought you were somebody. Now you're an idolater. And you think, well, maybe this son, he's a good boy. He brought that money back. He's not going to abide with that. And he says, no, Mama, make the graven image. And they finally reach this compromise where she, she goes to the founder and has him craft this graven image. And then this man, Micah, sets up a form of false worship in his own house around this idol. And that impression of just chaos is intentional. Because you know what happens? When the authority of God is abhorred in our life, chaos will reign. Your flesh, can I just tell you something? Yourself is not good at this thing that we call life. Your flesh does not have this thing of navigating through life figured out. I know your flesh won't tell you that. Your flesh won't let you in on that. But it's the reality of it. You think you're good at this thing called life. But were it not for the grace of God, you'd be laying in a ditch somewhere. The only thing about your life that keeps it from spinning out of control is the very grace and mercy of God. And so whenever this man begins to do that which is right in his own eyes, when he's abhorred the authority of God, now just this weird form of hybrid, corrupted, idolatrous worship in the name of Jehovah begins to take place. And that informs much later in the book of Judges. I'll let you read it in your own time. But suffice it to say, this is a life of tragedy and of disobedience. You know why that is? The preacher, how could he do that? Well, a life where idolatry of gods, little g gods, is allowed, is a life where a man's doing that which is right in his own eyes. Huh. They're violating one of the Ten Commandments by setting up this graven image. And, you know, I think sometimes men speak a little too largely about the Ten Commandments. They make it seem like all the law was was Ten Commandments, and that's not true. But certainly there is an emphasis placed on those Ten Commandments in the Word of God. It was certainly an egregious thing. It was not complicated to remember those Ten Commandments. And they were the foundation of, of, of Judeo-Christian ethic and Judean-Jewish uh, ethic of that time. And they literally violate one of them. They make an image to the Lord, which God had expressly forbidden. You know why they did that? Because in doing that, they really didn't care what God wanted in the first place. 
I'm going to make a statement here. Most worship today is geared towards the appealing to the individual, not to the pleasing of God. And I'm not talking about pagans. I'm not, I'm not talking about down at the church of Satan, right? I, I'm talking about, I'm talking about most churches, most Christian churches, most Baptist churches are more geared towards what the people out there desire than they are what the one up there desires. Really, all that is when we get down to it is a corrupted form of idolatry. We ought to care what, what the Lord wants, not what we want. What we want is unimportant or at the very least secondary. What he wants is what's primary. And when your life becomes about pleasing self, about uh, about setting up and reforming and reshaping, here's why God forbid graven images, because no man knows what God looks like. If a man made a graven image of Jehovah, he of necessity had to make it as a creation of his own imagination. God did not give man the possibility or the potential to create a graven image in his image because he never showed himself to mankind. That was not by accident. That was deliberate. Because here's what he knew would happen. If he had revealed to mankind the physical, visible image of himself, mankind would have taken that and they would have worshipped their own creation of the idol more than the creature. Now, here's what mankind's done. He's done it anyway. <laughs> mankind has made God, remade God into their own image, not physically, not visibly, but emotionally and spiritually, where that we have crafted in our mind a God that doesn't look anything like the God of the Bible, but he sure looks like the kind of God that we would create. He endorses all of our sins. He excuses all of our disobedience. He excoriates all of our foes. It's a convenient God that we have that runs about the universe doing our bidding for us. We've crafted that because really it's not an image of who God is in the first place. It's really nothing but a reflection of us. Most modern day worship is merely the cloning of the tainted, fallen, marred human visage that has been transferred to some weird concept of God that you won't find anywhere in your Bible. When a man yields to that sort of idolatry and yielding to that idolatry has much less to do with the actual act of the idolatry and much more to do with the, the permissiveness of idolatrous thought and, and belief in our mind. Once we cross that, that, that line where we're willing to say God is who I make him and not God is who he reveals himself to be, then we have effectively thrown off the authority of God in our life. And we've said what really matters is what's right in my eyes not what's right in his eyes. So a life where idolatry of gods, little g gods, is allowed. And then turn over to chapter 21. We'll look at one more and we'll be done tonight. Judges chapter 21. And look down with me at verse 24. Now as you find your place, let me give you a little bit of context of what's transpiring here. If you go back a few chapters, you'll find that God begins to reveal, he begins to tell a story uh, about a man, about a Levite who has a concubine. And uh, this concubine runs away from this Levite and he goes pursuing after this woman and he tracks this woman down and finds her in a, and, and begins to take her home back to his home. And they have to lodge one night in a city that is of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, while they're there that night, a group of evil, wicked men come to the house and they desire for him to deliver, uh, be delivered over, much like in Sodom and Gomorrah in the book of Genesis, for the man that owns the home to deliver the Levite over that they might abuse him. This man, unwilling to let that happen, instead pushes his concubine out the door, throws her to the pack of wolves, and they abuse this girl until she dies and she's left laying there whenever they wake up in the morning. 
Now, when this happens, this Levite is so outraged, which he had no right to be. She was out there because of him. Uh, Because he's so outraged, he takes this woman and hews her body into 12 pieces and sends those 12 pieces to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he uses that as a message to say this egregious, heinous crime has been committed and all the tribes need to come together to deal with the tribe of Benjamin over this act that has taken place. The land of Israel is so outraged by it that they all gather together. They try to talk with the tribe of Benjamin. The tribe of Benjamin is unwilling to. And a civil war breaks out, a short-lived civil war in the land of Israel. And the tribe of Benjamin is almost eradicated, almost extinguished through this. Because of that, the tribe of Benjamin comes to the rest of the tribes after the war and says, you have basically decimated our tribe. We no longer have enough population to support this tribe. We're going to be snuffed out. And so we require that you all give your daughters to be our wives so that we can birth more children, so that our tribe can survive and persist. They go back and forth. They negotiate some things. The Benjamins get their wives, they go home. And listen to how Deuteronomy chapter 21 ends. I know that's a lot to absorb, but you needed to know it. Listen to what it says. And the children of Israel departed thence at that time, every man to his tribe and to his family. And they went out from thence every man to his inheritance. In those days there was no king in Israel, but every man did that which was right in his own eyes. I told you the story in the background for this reason. The reason that every man, all the children of Israel departed thence at that time, every man to his tribe and to his family, is they were so disgusted, exhausted, and weary by the drama that had been created in the nation as a, as a product of this, that when they left, here's what they were saying. I'm done with Benjamites. I'm done with Ephraimites. I'm done with Manassehites. I'm going back home to my folks. I'm going to shut the door. I'm going to pull the blanket over my head. I'm done with all them people. They're just a bunch of drama and noise. And it caused Israel to sort of retreat into their respective tribes and to isolate themselves one from another. They're so frustrated because of how they've been mistreated and maltreated. They're so disgusted because of the problems that have existed that they have given up on fellowship as a nation. And they've gone back home because they're tired of dealing with the problems that come with dealing with people. Let's just go ahead and bring this in New Testament Christianity. Can we talk about how many people you've known in your life and I've known in mine that have gone down to the house of God and they've got hurt, they've got mistreated, they've got maltreated, some kind of problem came up, some kind of something happened, and it was just too easy to just go to the house and give up on the people of God. But you see, there's great danger when we give up on the people of God because it's the people of God that help keep us accountable. It's the people of God that help challenge us. It's the people of God. Hey, listen, iron sharpeneth iron, right? A countenance of a man sharpeneth the countenance of another man. Isolation is not healthy for the people of God. God did not design us to withdraw away from God's people. (laughs) Listen, if anybody in a church has seen the ugly side of people, trust me, it's the pastor. You see things and you know things about people, things that you never asked to know, you know. I mean, things that that just come from pastoring people and interacting with people. And if you think that you've experienced hurt, and maybe you have, but I'll tell you, there ain't a pastor that loves the Lord and loves his people that hasn't been hurt, hasn't, hasn't died spiritual death at the hand of a thousand cuts a thousand times. It's just the nature of ministry. I don't say that to complain. I say that to say I get it. I understand the tendency to sometimes want to just say, you know, I'm just tired, 
tired of the tired of the noise, tired of the people, tired of, of people failing me and disappointing me, tired of things happening. You know what? I'm just going to take my family and go home to my tribe and my land and not deal with those people anymore. But you know, when you do that, you no longer have anyone in your life that's challenging you, that's keeping you accountable. And so, preacher, how does this happen? Well, in a life where the community of God is avoided, where you just say, you know what? It's easier just not deal with people. So I'm just going to go to the house. You can make that choice. But the problem is in doing so, you forfeit the opposing force, the friction that you need in your life of people that love you enough, that look at your life. Your flesh will not tell you the truth. It has too, It's too biased. It has a vested interest in you getting away with things. But the people of God that love you in your life, you need them in your life to challenge and charge you. So you say, okay, preacher, I shouldn't be doing that which is right in my own eyes. So whose eyes, right? Whose eyes? Let me read just one verse. Deuteronomy 13, verse 18. When thou shalt hearken to the voice of the Lord thy God to keep all his commandments which I command thee this day to do that which is right in the eyes of the Lord thy God. We all are going to be doing something. It's either going to be right or it's going to be wrong. It's either going to be right in our eyes and wrong in the eyes of the Lord or what would be far better is to do that which is wrong in the eyes of our flesh that old man that hates God and his word and his authority, but doing that which is right in the eyes of the Lord thy God. What does that mean? Well, it means three things. One, it means to submit to his words. He said to keep all his commandments, which I command thee this day. Hey, the greatest the greatest safeguard in your life against you merely indulging the authority of self is the word of God. The word of God will tell you true, no matter whether it upsets you, no matter whether it, it, it messes up your plans or your self-image. Word of God doesn't care. It's going to tell you the truth. Not only to submit to his word, but he says this, that shall hearken to the voice of the Lord thy God. Well, now, obviously, this is the word of God, right? But the voice is, is not the words. The voice is the expression or application of those words. So how does God apply his word in the life of believers today? He does it through his witness, through the Holy Spirit. So we ought to submit to his word, but we also ought to submit to the Holy Spirit of God. When he deals with you, don't argue with him. Listen to him. He knows what's best. And then he says this, do that which is right in the eyes of the Lord, to submit to his ways. So not just to read his word, not just to listen to the Spirit of God, but then to apply it in obedience unto the Lord. That's how we live a life that's right in the eyes of the Lord. And let me just tell you, what's right in his eyes is right. (laughs) What might be right in your eyes might be right or might be wrong, but what's right in his eyes is always right. Right. Let's make sure our life is right in his eyes rather than our own. Let's bow together tonight as a musician comes to play. The altar is open. God may have stirred your heart about something. Wouldn't surprise me if maybe there was a specific matter that the Holy Ghost put his finger upon in your life, pointed to, called it by name to you. It came to your mind. You couldn't get it out of your mind while the preaching was going on. Won't you meet the Lord in the altar and won't you let God deal with that thing in your life? Put it, put it into subjection unto him. Let his authority reign over that matter. Uh, you're not saying you're going to be perfect, but what you are saying is, Lord, you're right and I'm wrong and I'm willing to acknowledge that. Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify Christ. We ask it in his name.